Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. This is part two of episode 30 in the book of John entitled, I Will Not Leave You as Orphans, where we continue our discussion of John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, remind us what we're going to see in these verses today. Well, this is an incredible section of scripture in which Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. He will come to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we get to see here uh, some of the aspects of the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit, the counselor. Also, we have a sense of the intimacy that we can have with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwelling within us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let me go ahead and read John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31 to set the stage for our conversation. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So verse 25 has a sense of urgency in one sense when it says, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, uh, which leads to this promise of Jesus in verse 26. What ministries will the Holy Spirit perform for the disciples in Jesus's absence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's really amazing how he says in another place, it's to your benefit that I go away. Mm. Um, but the counselor does better for the church on earth than Jesus could do in his one locality. You know, mm -hmm. Jesus is restrained in space and time to be in one place at one time. And there would be concentric circles of access to Jesus to the point where if you can't get close enough, you have to dig through a roof to lower a paralyzed man down. You can't get close to him. But the Holy Spirit has no such limitations. And the Spirit comes to deliver Jesus effectively, to mm -hmm. deliver Jesus to us, most especially through the word. 
And so the counselor comes and he says, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, first and foremost, we have to hear this in, in, and have the apostles in mind, not us. So by that I mean that the apostles were there to be with Jesus and to hear him speak and to see him act and to be witnesses to the world. Everything the world gets about Jesus has come through the apostles. As First John says, that which we have seen with our eyes, what we have handled, what, what we have physically interacted with, this is what we proclaim to you concerning the word of, word of life. The word appeared, we made known, made known to us, etc. All right, we get everything at the human level through the apostles. Mm. So the apostles had to remember what he said. We already have examples of this in John 2 when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They didn't understand. It wasn't until later they got it. Well, how'd that happen? Holy Spirit. Hey, remember when Jesus said such and such? Yes. Well, this is what it meant. He was speaking about his body. Oh. And then John wrote it down some decades later. Also, when it came time for John to write his gospel, I mean, I have trouble remembering. Like, I kept a journal for a lot of years. And if you get behind, you're in trouble. (laughs) I'm like trying to remember four days ago what Mm -hmm. happened on Tuesday. I'm like, I don't know what happened Mm -hmm. on Tuesday. So the Holy Spirit was able to bring back precision, actual quotes, perfect word, what Jesus actually said. So we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we get a, a faithful record. So the Holy Spirit brought to their memories the things that Jesus said. But then for us, the Holy Spirit comes to remind us of scriptures we've learned, mm. right? Yeah. Remind us of things that, the, the scriptures uh, that we have memorized, things, that, and he brings them to our mind. He teaches us things and brings them to mind. So not just reminding, but then just teaching, like destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. What did that mean? Let me tell you what it means. The foot washing, you don't understand now. Hmm. Later you'll get it. Why later? Holy Spirit will make it clear to you. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, so helpful as we think about even the way these things are recounted Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. Yeah, the insights that we have, every aha moment, Mm -hmm. Wes, that you or I have ever had in our Christian life has come to us by the Holy Spirit. That's what illumination is. He he shines light on the Word and then teaches us. Praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. In verse 27, we see a lot about peace, Christ's peace specifically. Mm -hmm. How is Christ's peace different from the world's peace And why mention it here? Yeah, peace is something Satan cannot counterfeit. Hmm. And I I know this from uh, from this verse, I do not give as the world does, but also Isaiah is even clearer. The wicked are like the raging sea whose waves cannot rest, which cast up mire and muck. Hmm. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Hmm. So here's the thing. First of all, we need to understand peace in two senses. Peace with God, such as a right relationship with God, and then a feeling of peacefulness based on that status of peace with God. That's what the world cannot have. So the world, first and foremost, cannot vertically have a right relationship with God apart from repentance and faith in Christ. Satan has no right relationship with God. He believes that there's a God, but he trembles. He shudders. He hates it. All right, so he has no status of peace with God. Secondly, uh, the the wicked can't have feelings of peacefulness. Think about it. Uh, uh, Somebody who is a non-Christian, it says in Isaiah that that the 
their sin casts up mire and muck. So they're anxious, they're troubled, they're covetous, they're lustful, they're ambitious, they're, they're just seething with sin all the time. They cannot feel peaceful. So they take pills, they take tranquilizers, they get drunk, they anesthetize, they, they, they can't feel anything. That's a counterfeit peace, but it really isn't peace. Wow. So the drunk who tries to drink his troubles away has only added a new trouble to those troubles. And then that new trouble becomes the single greatest trouble in their life. They are now an al alcoholic. But the problems are all still there. Financial troubles, relational troubles, and all that. You can't fake the peace of the gospel. So verse 28 has an interesting statement in it. It says, you've heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Mm -hmm. Why should the disciples be glad that Jesus is going away? Well, they can be glad for Jesus because it's better for him. Okay. Think about it that way. It's mm. better. And Paul said it's better by far to be in heaven. But it's even better, better for Jesus because he laid aside the glory of God. He asked for it back in John 17. Now, Father, give me the glory I had with you before the world began. He didn't have it on earth. He looked like a normal human being. Now he had a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration, just a, a radiant, bright, shining light. But that was not the same as sitting on a throne of glory as deity and being worshiped by the seraphim. That's better. So. You just be happy for me. If you love me, you just be happy. I'm going home to be with the Father. Hmm. But you also should be happy on your behalf because I'm going to send the counselor. And it yeah. also means that I'm finished dying for you and rising again, that the work is finished. You'd be happy in every regard. And just simply, if I say something, you should be happy when it happens because everything that I propose is good. So there's a multiple dimensions to why they should have been happy that he was going to the Father. Sure. Now, at the end of verse 28, there's the statement, the Father is greater than I. Does Jesus' statement here undermine the doctrine of the Trinity? There are dimensions, theological dimensions to your question that have been very controversial uh, recently. So, some of them even relate to gender roles. It, it's called the eternal subordination of the Son. Uh, is there a, just a functional subordination or is there a, a timeless and eternal subordination, which some people say goes over into uh, denial of the Trinity, the very thing you said, mm. uh, functional heresy. So here's the thing. Uh, it would be heresy if we were saying that the Son is not ontologically essentially God. Mm. God from God, light from light, very God from very God, that would be a heresy. It is not, however, a heresy to say that the Son has eternally taken a subordinate role when it comes to salvation. And that's what I believe, though some people would d deny that. They would say, no, the only subordination there is is when he became incarnate. Hmm. As a human, just in his incarnation, he was subordinate to the Father. The reason I would argue against just limiting it that way is that Jesus knew from the foundation of the world that he would die as an atoning sacrifice. Hmm. He would die, not the Father. The Son would die. And that the Son would die in submission to the Father's will and plans. Hmm. So just in thinking about that and even discussing it between the Trinity, he's taking a subordinate role. So ontologically, essentially, truly God, being in very nature God, he hmm. was God. 
But I think that there was a submission or subordination functionally even before he became incarnate as he looked at the uh, the animal sacrifices he knew they represented his death. Wow. When, when he interfered with Abraham sacrificing Isaac, saying, do not harm the boy, basically, I'll die for him. He knew before the foundation of the world he would die and he would take that subordinate role. So that's how I would argue. But we must not argue that he's essentially below the Father. That would be anti-Trinitarian. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, one, one other thing I would say. The Son obeys the Father. The Father does not obey the Son. There mm. is no verse ever that shows a mutual submission, so to speak, in that regard. They do not submit to each other. Mm -mm. Not at all. The Son submits to the Father. And I think he... He was preparing to submit even before the incarnation. He was mentally, you know, functionally ready to do the Father's will. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so but the, the, it just does not go the other way. So that's why submission really does mean obedience and the Father never obeys the Son, but the Son definitely obeys the Father. Hmm. How did John 13, 19 and 14, 29 link Jesus' foreknowledge of events to faith? All right, so 1319, he says, I'm telling you this now before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am. And then uh, again, he says the same thing. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you'll believe. Same teaching. So here's the thing. Um, specifically in, in terms of his own death, but then in a lesser way, in terms of uh, the disciples' suffering and even their death, Jesus's clear predictions set aside a painful moment there where they can see the plan unfolding and they think this proves that Jesus is not God. Mm. Like when you see Jesus dead on the cross, it's hard to believe he is God. And so when he tells them ahead of time, mm. I'm going to the Father, you know, etc., then they will be able to believe. So fundamentally, his prediction of the future then makes him Honestly, in, the, in light of Deuteronomy, uh, when a prophet comes and says something, if what he has said comes to pass, then you will know that he's a true prophet. That's in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is a true prophet because what he said came to pass. Mm. I want to go ahead and read verses 30 and 31 one more time. And then I have two questions and then would love to hear any final thoughts that you have yeah. on this passage. So verse 30 says this. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Mm -hmm. He has no claim on me, in verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So who is the prince of this world and why is he coming? What's happening here? Yeah, I really believe that the prince or the ruler of this world is Satan. Mm. All right, I don't think he's talking about Annas or Caiaphas or Pontius Pilate. <clears throat> so fundamentally, this is, um, and Pontius Pilate doesn't even know that Jesus is being arrested, I think, at this point. Um, maybe wrong about that, I don't know. But the prince of this world is Satan. Uh, he's also called the ruler of this age. There's a certain authority that he have. He's coming for me. Now, here's, here's the significance of the piece of bread that Jesus gave to Judas. He dips it in the bowl, hands it to him. Satan enters into him. Jesus says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Mm. Judas gets up and leaves, and it was night. Immediately then Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. So Judas leaving started a clock ticking. Hmm. I mean, it's very practical. It's like Mission Impossible or whatever. He's got to get himself to the Garden of Gethsemane because Judas is going there with the, with the troops. 
And so he's got to get there. And so at the end of even this chapter, he says, rise, let us go, or come, let us leave. Yeah. So we got to get out of here. We got to leave the upper room. We've got to go to where I can be arrested. So the, the prince of this world is coming for me. He's coming to get me. He's coming to arrest me. But you need to understand that properly. I'm not submissive to him. I'm not obedient to him. I'm laying down my life. Mm. I, I could wipe him out, all his demons, all the Romans. I could, I could destroy everyone. And furthermore, he's the accuser. Satan means accuser. He has nothing on me. I've never sinned. He can't accuse me. I am pure as light. Mm. So he has no power over me. He has no authority over me. This is not a dualistic universe. You know, it's not the good God versus the evil God, and they're battling it out in roughly equal terms. He has no power over me. Yeah. But the world must learn something. What must the world learn? That I love the Father. Yeah. Now go back to the beginning of, of this section here. If you love me, you will obey what I command. The world must learn what love obedience looks like. I'm going to show you the extent of my love for the Father. I'm going to die yeah. under his wrath according to his word. I'm going to obey him to that degree. I'm going to submit right to death, even death on a cross. That's the level of submission I'm going to put on display. I will be the perfect human, born to be a servant, born to be submissive to the Father. Mm. I will do what the Father has told me to do. And not only that, he says, the world must learn. What must the world learn? That I love the Father. Think about the two great commandments. Mm. This is so beautiful. Jesus perfectly fulfills the two great commandments at the cross. He loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and body, his strength, even to the point of dying. Perfect mm. love for the Father. Secondly, he loved his neighbor as himself. He loved his neighbor with perfect blessedness horizontally, a blessing that still the dimensions we don't fully know. We don't know how many elect are going to be redeemed by the bloodshed on the cross, but his horizontal love almost can't be measured. Mm -hmm. So the perfect fulfillment of the law, Jesus loved his father and he loved his neighbor. Perfect obedience. The world must know. It must learn that I love my father and do everything he's commanded me to do. That's an incredibly helpful answer. So helpful that you actually answered my second question that I had as okay. well. So it's just a, a beautiful picture of Jesus' willingness mm -hmm. uh, to, as you said, fulfill those two commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Any final thoughts on this passage as we've looked at really the, the end of John chapter 14 before we move into John 15. Well, I want to just harmonize everything that, uh, that we've talked about as best I can. And I think fundamentally, you know, we've looked inter-Trinitarian, we looked at the relationship between the Father and the Son, and, and we ended up with the world must learn that I love the Father mm. and that I do exactly what the Father's commanded me to do. Well, I actually think that's what the Holy Spirit has given to us to do in us, that the, that the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will work in us the same love that Jesus had, mm. that we will love the Father and do exactly what he wants us to do, and that we will love each other or love our neighbor as ourselves perfectly, like in the First Corinthians 13 sense. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to make us loving people. Hmm. Well, thanks so much, Andy. Again, this has been part two of episode 30 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 31, entitled The Vine and the Branches where we'll discuss John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. 
Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.